0: October the twentieth, two thousand thirteen, lecture discussion number one twenty eight on the book of Romans, and you know, well, we're, we're still continuing our Psalm twenty two section of our Romans five twelve fourteen section of our book of Romans section. That's where we're at, and hopefully that makes some sense to you. From last Sunday, uh, we have the mystery uh, where we kind of left off last Sunday. We have the mystery of the meaning of the pierce, pierced, pierced side, in concert or in connection, if you will, complement would probably be a better word, with the unbroken bones. So we have these two elements of the crucifixion that are set side by side, that's especially true... um, uh, if you want to say they accompany each other that would be appropriate that's john nineteen thirty six through thirty seven the uh, the uh, piercing and the unbroken bones is set together. not one of his bones shall be broken they shall look on him whom they pierced and that is a, a fantastic verse. we'll get to that as the lecture goes along. but there you see in john 19 thirty seven that he brings up exodus twelve forty six And Zechariah 12.10, and puts them side by side, if you will, um, Exodus and Zechariah. Is that right? 12.46. Got the two and the four backwards, which will happen a lot. As we keep going. And what I mean by that is that you need to start to look at these two uh, as, as if they accompany each other. Don't separate them out. Don't think that they have no relationship. They have an unbelievable relationship, as you should expect. When you see something that is pulled out of Exodus 12 and something that is pulled out of Zechariah 12 and they are put together by the Apostle John... Uh, for example, as evidence of the deity of Christ, because that's the whole reason he writes uh, the book of John, is to prove to you that Christ is God himself. That is his major purpose, his only purpose, frankly. It's a proof of the deity of Christ. So you know that he is doing it uh, in order to uh, continue that proof. And I consider, and this, this is my opinion, obviously, you get a lot of my opinion today. I try not to do that, but it's one of those days. I consider the unbroken bones and the pierced side, two elements of the crucifixion that have yielded the least amount of their, uh, if you will, their secrecy. Um, they are very shrouded. They, I think they remain shrouded. Um, and all we really know is what they connect to. We know the pure side connects to what? Come on, you can do this. What's the pure side connect to? Adam, very good. What do the unbroken bones connect to? Well, that's the Passover lamb, right? So we can find where they connect. And that's helpful. But their meaning is still not necessarily explained by that. We connect. That's why I put Adam in the Passover lamb up there. I know there are other connections you can make. But those are essentially the first mention uh, of the types that uh, are in that are the pierced side that are fulfilled by Christ. The pierced side is is given to us in typology or in prophecy by Adam, and it is fulfilled on the on the cross at the crucifixion. The unbroken bones are given to us in prophecy and typology, if you will, by the Passover Lamb, and it is fulfilled by Christ on the. Uh, crucifixion as well. So we know what the first mention types are. Uh, first mention, again, being the first time that it is mentioned in Scripture in any form. Uh, first mentions are very important as you study the Bible. If you find a word in the New Testament that or in, uh, somewhere in the Old Testament, go find where it is first mentioned in the Bible and that will help you. God is consistent. He He works that out very, very well. He's really smart. Uh, So start expecting that instead of the opposite, which we'll talk about in a minute. There's an opposite to that. But the exact meanings of the pierced side and the unbroken bones uh, are are still evasive. And and I brought this up last Sunday by asking, what is the meaning? Not just the connection, not just the first mention, but what's the meaning of the pierced side? Or why is this piercing facet detail, if you will, um, included in the crucifixion? It isn't an accident. He wanted to have his side pierced. Now, we could see some of the results of that. We see the blood come out over the soldier that has the spear. So, we could see how it affects that soldier. But there's more to it than just that because it's all over the Old Testament. So, why is he doing this? What does it mean and why is he doing it? And then how is it connected to the unbroken bones detail? And then when I, what is the meaning of the unbroken bones? That none of his bones shall be broken. Why? That has a meaning. It's, remember, he's always saving, he's always teaching. So, so what is the, the meaning of it, and how is he using it? And finally, when I take those two parts and put them together, what else is, what is the sum of the two parts? Because that's what I have. I have two pieces put together that make a total. And yes, I know, I, this is where I'm going to deviate just a second. I know, in case you're wondering, uh, and some people wonder if I'm cognizant of the size and scope of the contrary view to what I'm giving you today. I have a view of the crucifixion of Christ. I'll explain what it is again here in a minute. And there's another view, what I like to call the what? That's right, the wrong view. And I am aware of it. I know it's there. And they overwhelm me in numbers. No question about that. I don't know if Jeff is still listening out there, but hi, Jeff, if you are. But Jeff used to always ask me, uh, he would go back to pastors that he had in Denver and ask them questions. And and he'd finally come to the conclusion, is there anybody else, he would ask me, that... that uh, presents this way, this line of thinking. Uh, not very many of us left. Sometimes I feel really lonely. But I, I know the other view really well. That's something that I do. I make it a mission of mine to understand it better than they do. But I am single-minded on the issue. Uh, I will not be convinced by them. They cannot convince me. It is impossible. I will die this way. There is no hope that I will change my mind. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ revealed his godhood. He's saving and he's teaching. One of the things he's teaching is that he is Lord God, that he is uh, the creator God. He is the only God. There is no God but him. And he's doing it in unimaginable, incomprehensible ways. If we, you were there to watch what he did and heard what he said, it was said and done in a way that was amazing, and we can't even describe it. And his omnipotence, that's his power, all the power that he has, and he has all the power, was on display at the crucifixion for all of his creation. What do I mean by that? He wants to make sure that the angelic host Hears and sees what he's doing because he is solving Matthew four, where where Satan has come to him and asks a question. This is the first lie of Satan, where Satan does might know, and that debate goes on. But uh, because it's called a lie, but Satan puts a question in front of God, not knowing it is God, uh, not being aware of the hypostatic union that is there—God-Man union. And the entire angelic host is watching that contest, if you will. It's not really a contest. Because one side is God, the other one is not. So it's a massacre. But that, the massacre of Matthew 4, the solution to the lie of Satan that is given there, and that question again, for those of you on the internet, you can find it in earlier lectures, but that question is essentially the omniscience of God And the free will sin of uh, a created being—how how how both of those can uh, exist simultaneously—but Christ is answering that question uh, for the angelic host on the, uh, or proving that the solution has now been has now occurred on his uh, cross. That's one of the things he's doing. And I'm on the side that says each and every recorded detail of the of the crucifixion contains volumes on its own. In other words, they're just massive events. They're just unbelievable. You could devote your whole lifetime to one single piece of it. Just finding out why he makes sure that he's crucified on top of the skull of Goliath. Now you got to go back to Goliath. Go through the David and Goliath issue. Look at the Antichrist prophecy that is there. Look at all of that. You could devote your lifetime just to the skull of Goliath. Why his head was cut off. Why the skull was brought back to Jerusalem. What the purpose of that was. That's Genesis 3.15. Lifetime. Just there. Gleaning the totality of the skull of Goliath. Are the two poisons... Why these poisons? Why did he take one, turn one down? You could take Simon the Cyrenian that has to carry the crossbeam. What Christ is doing, what he's teaching, why he did it. Can God carry a stick? That's my question I ask all the time. Of course he can. But he makes Simeon. Part of the Simeon prophecy. Simon Peter, Simeon the Cyrenian, Simeon of the twelve um, that is imprisoned, uh, the Simeon the prophet. Collect all the Simeons. Take you a lifetime. The two thieves. What, what they said. Why there's two. How far apart are they? Why one did what he did. Or, or if you will, any one of the seven saints. Just, just to get you started. All, any of those small pieces, if you want to call them small. They're not small. They're huge pieces. That's my position. I've gone, what, ten weeks on Psalm 22. One. I haven't started Psalm 22. One. Because i got to do Psalm 23 and Psalm 24 in order to do Psalm 22. I haven't gone to the, the, the trust, the not ashamed versus the blackness. I'll do that hopefully next week. I could go a year on Psalm 22. I've done it. So my position is, and my point is, is that I approach the crucifixion of Christ from the perspective that he is in complete authority at all times, doing and saying exactly what he purposed before he made time, when he precisely intends. And my position is Jesus Christ is omnipotent creator God, saving and teaching from his cross, and nothing can stop him. Or affect him. And everything about the crucifixion, all of it that is written, must be reconciled with that fact. The fact of his godhood. And then that requires one now to look upon every seemingly innocuous detail as the opposite of that. There is no such thing as a... Uh, seemingly in, or an innocuous detail there is nothing everything is critically important everything is massive and voluminous and just of fantastic value even the very smallest piece and as you know that's true of all of the bible but if my view is if you can't approach the crucifixion of god with that on the forefront um, what will result with the remainder of scripture Uh, I I submit it's going to be catastrophic doctrinal error. So if you can't get the crucifixion right, then you're just going to be a, a mess everywhere else in the Bible when you study it. That's my view. Put it another way. To disregard the Godhood of Christ at his crucifixion. My goodness. If you disregard the Godhood of Christ at his crucifixion, that's going to be so very crippling That all of the Bible to you now is going to be a a, a clouded, uh, just a big cloud for you. You're not going to see dimly. I never met dimly. Isn't he one? Wasn't he a small man that you can't say what he, in the, the Lord of the Rings? Wasn't that dimly? No. Okay. You won't see dimly. Dimly is way too bright. You're going to be doctrinally blind. If you cannot, Understand the godhood of Christ, at least at his crucifixion. Get it right there. You get it correct there, at least you have a chance. Needless to say, the other side uh, sees this very differently. Um, They declare that the seven saints are not a planned Not a purpose, not an intended, not a complexity, not the voice of God, not the mind of God being revealed. They see the seven sayings as incoherent, panic-stricken, random utterances of a despairing, helpless man. That's how they view them. The total opposite of me. By the way, go to an Ishtar service here in town. Pick one. Pick a church. You're going to find... That's what they're going to tell you. They won't say it as overtly as that. You'll have to listen carefully. But they'll tell you that Christ is despairing, and lonely, and abandoned, and doomed. He's at the mercy of the Roman army and the Jewish, Jewish ruling class, crying out. Because he's helpless. That's what they say. Every ishtar. They don't even know to call it Passover anymore. If you can't even understand that it's first fruits and the Passover and the unleavened bread festivals, if you can't even know that, then why are you even bothering to preach on what you think it's about? Anyway, all of the crucifixion passages the wrong side will say, and they won't like that by the way. Uh all the crucifixion passages they will say are best interpreted and understood from the paradigm that Christ is uh incoherent and despairing and panicked. That's what they want you to they say you if you take that position then they will make sense to you. That's they're very confident they have decided that's true, and they're not at all bashful about presenting it to you. Uh, in fact, the most recent uh, author, uh, we'll use as an example, the most recent author who shall remain nameless, Bill O'Reilly, has re-entered the re- arena this week, Okay, explaining that he omitted the seven sayings of God from the cross, uh, uh, from his book. So the seven sayings from the cross, from God, he omitted from his book because his, this was what he told us, uh, they cannot be independently verified. In other words, there is no independent verification that Christ said them during his crucifixion. Because somebody asked him, how come you omitted Mr. Nameless, the seven sayings from the cross? His response, they can't be independently verified. And that's perfect. You can't get more perfect of the other side than that. That is a perfect example. He articulated the other side for me as well as possible with that, uh, that explanation. Because they cast out scripture. God's word, if they do not find man's word to support it. In other words, if they cannot find a historical confirmation. Historical confirmation is required. If they can't find that, then they cast it out. They don't put it in their, in their explanations or in their commentaries. Mankind is then what? Given precedence over the Bible. The Bible is unacceptable on its own. It requires a human buttress in their thinking. They, in my response to that, obviously, if the seven sayings are disallowed on such a basis, why stop there? Just Dis, Dispense with the entire crucifixion uh, and certainly cast out the existence of Christ entirely. Why not? I don't have somebody who says uh, independently that that's the case. They don't do that. You know why they don't do that? That's going to interfere with their book sales. And he who shall remain nameless, Bill O'Reilly, is proclaiming his book uh, will exceed five million sales. And I actually don't contest uh, this boast. He's uh, probably likely correct about that. I will say that it will not be something for which uh, Mr. O'Reilly brags about before the throne of Christ. I think uh, the fact that um, he put out a book that is um, that discounts the deity of Christ is something that uh, he's going to be very ashamed of. I think you'll find that God is not impressed by the wealth of men, nor the influence of a man on the weak. Book sales will be a worthless, futile excuse. Ultimately, you see, this is a two-sided argument or debate that that, uh, I'm having with them. They see me as um, essentially a lone voice, certainly a small voice, and then as the overwhelming majority position. But it nonetheless is a two-sided debate. Their side advocates and contends for the simple, the shallow. They fight for the seven sayings to be disparate, confused. Disordered, if they even allow them to exist, but they call them to be confused and disordered, even calling into question again their very existence, thereby rendering them meaningless. And the logical extension then would be to present Christ as likewise, also confused, disordered, as well as weak-minded and thrashing helplessly and alone and abandoned and impotent and despairing, and which is how they present him. They call him, they say he is a regular man just like you, just like me, with great fear of death that overwhelms him. They say all of the crucifixion passages are evidence of a man being executed by a government who saw him as a potential political liability. That's not why they executed him. Do You know why they executed him? Because he called himself the I Am. He called himself Creator God, but they say he's being executed as a political threat. They glean that or they grab that out of the messianic element to it. They saw him as, a, uh, the, as somebody, a military messiah. Had they understood the messianic prophecies, they would never have come to that conclusion, but how can I expect them to know that? And these, the other side, they're they're the arbiters of which passages are to be deemed acceptable, and they cast out those that they find problematic. I'm telling you that that is uh, the simple and the shallow. I'm on the opposite side. I see only depth and complexity. I'm looking at the rebuke of Proverbs 1:22, where God, where Proverbs says, uh, "How long will you simple ones love and cling to the simple? When will you give up the simple?" If you won't give it up at the crucifixion, where will you give it up? And I see all of the passages revealing the extraordinary, amazing plan of God. And I see God himself in full control as he completes every element of his death. And there is no middle position. That makes them mad. There's no compromise. You cannot have one half of the other view. You cannot. Let me just give you a brief example. You end up with this question. Is his perfect humanity? And he has absolute humanity. But what is it? It is perfect humanity. It isn't imperfect humanity. He doesn't have sinful humanity like we do. He has perfect humanity. What, What does perfect humanity ever look like? Have you ever seen it? Wives never look at their husbands when I ask that question. An occasional husband that is very smart looks over at his wife and pretends. But it's never the other way around. But we have never seen perfect humanity. We would not even understand. It's it's an unimaginable concept to us. But he has perfect humanity. Now, is his perfect humanity subject to his godhood? Or is, or do you have a position that he has flawed humanity that is independent of his godhood and can go off and do whatever it wants? So he's part God and part man, okay? But you have to maintain his infinity when you say things like part. But I'll concede the hypothetical. If you have this position that he's part man and part God, um, and they're at war with each other, the humanity is afraid, but the God part is omniscient. Fear and omniscience are not compatible. That's the view, by the way. I ask them all the time. Do you, is it your position that he has flawed humanity that is in conflict with his deity? That would be my question. I ask it commonly. You know what the response I get back? He has no deity. That's what I get. That resolves it. Then I go on to, well, if he has no deity, then there is no salvation. Because without his deity, I have no perfect blood. I have no sinless blood. I have no salvation. I have no capacity for salvation. They don't care about that because they're universalists. So this is where it all goes. When you get up to the higher reaches of the doctrinal uh, ...universities, if you will, or the doctrinal schools, you will find that that's where you end up. There's no middle position. You can't have one half of the other view. You can work that out um, while I go on to Zechariah 12:10 through 14. So, that's where we're going now. I'm going to prove my position using the prophecy of Zechariah. Whenever somebody gets into this debate with me... I end up here in Zechariah, and I have this little verse that I think, and I, I'm never big on making you or asking you to commit things to memory, but here's one, just tell yourself I've got to have this Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, who's talking here? God is talking. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And I'm going to add a word, just like... It says, like, just like the mourning of Hadad-Raman in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei." By itself, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Now that, by the way, is the passage, and I erased it because I have to make a list. That's the passage being referenced in John 19, 36, 37. That's the pierced passage. When John says uh, pierced is connected to unbroken bones, this is the pierced passage that he refers where the linking of the unbroken bones and the pierced side occurs. And as you can hopefully already anticipate, Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 is filled to overflowing with consequential truths. This is God himself speaking his words. When the I, and I, that's God, and I will pour out on the house of David, the I in that sentence is God. When they look on me whom they pierce, the me in that sentence is who? That's God. They will look on me whom they pierce. They, they, me. I'll put it I, me, they, they. What do you notice about that? I'll do it again. Then they will look on me. Where are they going to look on me? Who's the me? He is God. What did he just say? He just said, definitely, without stuttering, that it is him on the cross. God is on the cross. It can't get any clearer than that. If you have a position that God is not on the cross, you have to go back to 12.10 and say, what does this mean then, then? Then they will look on me who is on the cross. God is speaking. I am on the cross. So now your position has to be, if God is on the cross, what's he doing? The God of creation, the God of Israel, Zechariah 12.10 by itself, destroys all the dribble nonsense about Psalm 22.1. It's God on the cross. They will look at me, God. All this crud about Psalm 22 that is taught throughout the contemporary church today is destroyed by Zechariah 12.10. Because the me is God. That's why it's so important. I don't even have to call it any further. That should end it. It doesn't, but it should. It's God hanging there. What, what are the implications of that? God himself says it. It's me on the cross. And they will mourn for him. Who is the him? The him is the me. So, it's God on the cross, he says it's me. I always ask people all the time, would you have liked it if Christ, when he got on the cross, said, hey, it's me, God. Would that help you with your stupid position? Sorry, not really, fake sorry. Would that help you? And they look at me, yes, if only he had said, it's me, God, on the cross. They said, well, he did. Zechariah 12.10. They will mourn for him who is the me. So that's God there. Is he weak? God weak? God afraid? God despairing over his physical death? God crying for himself? And again, I'm sorry I can't stop ranting about this. and Not really fake sorry. It makes me furious how the modern church betrays Christ God on the cross. The modern church is destructive here. It's apostasy, heresy, blasphemy. Okay, so you got that, I hope. Moving along. Josiah is the next reference. The mourning of Israel for the rejection of Christ. See, God is saying that he's going to pour out grace. And he's going to say to them, it was me on the cross. It's me. He says it here, but he's going to say it again. That was me, the God of Israel, the God of creation. The only God, the all God, that was on the cross. And you rejected me. That's what he's going to say to them. And they're going to mourn because they realize something now. What do they realize? That's right. They realize they were fools. They were idiots. And they're going to mourn for their foolish, foolish ignorance. That they did not know that that was the Lord God Almighty himself who was on this cross. His cross. They're going to mourn that they were so ignorant that they were mocking their own God. That's what Zechariah 12.10 says. And once they realize that, all of the totality of Israel will mourn just as they did for King Josiah. Because that's that reference. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning that happened at Riman in the plain of Megiddo, which is King Josiah. And there you go is your big, your big clue. That is critical to know that Josiah is part of Zechariah 12.10. Josiah is a type. He's a likeness. That's why that word like is in there. And Josiah has a likeness, a type that applies to the crucifixion. Again, that's the key clue that unlocks the meaning of the pierced side. I find out why the pierced side. Again, I have the typology that the church comes out of the, I'm sorry, that Eve comes out of the pure side of Adam in an operation that God does, if you will, that you make the case that Adam's deep sleep is the equivalent to physical death. Out of the side of Adam comes the bride of Adam. Out of the side of Christ comes the bride of Christ. But again, he didn't have to do it that way. Well, he did, because he's omniscient. Why did he do it that way is the better way to put it. And the key to understanding the totality, the meaning, and the why, not just the how and the connections, is the typology of King Josiah. That's what he tells you in Zechariah Uh, um, 12.10. Excuse me, I forgot to answer. ask the other obvious question in Zechariah 12.10. Sorry, so I'll put it in here. The first obvious question is the who is the me. The me is God himself. This is where God says that's me on the cross. So you never have to ever wonder if that's God on the cross again. He tells you plain as he can. It's me you're looking at. So that's the first obvious question is who is the me and the me is God. That's the answer. The second obvious question. Okay. Is the they the same they? Does that make sense? Is the they the same they? Let me explain it. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Then they, which you always do, I should film you. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Is the they the same they? The answer is no. The they is not the same they. should be clear to you, obvious. That's why it's an obvious question. The they is not the same they. We have the looking they who become then the mourning they. And we have the piercing they. Does that make sense to you? If it does, you're starting to think like me. Are you worried? Good. Let me repeat it. We have the looking they who then become the mourning they. The they who look end up mourning because they realize that they're mocking their own God and they don't know it's the me. But we also have the piercing they. They're not the same they. The they that pierce and the they that mourn are not the same. Does that make sense? You know from last week, who did the piercing? The Roman soldier did. You would say the Romans did, if you will, by extension. So let me say, put it this way. Then they will look on me whom the Romans pierced. Does that makes sense? The they refers to the Romans. The second they. The Romans were the ones that God used to perform the piercing, if you will. Now you're in the question, is how do I, how do I pierce God? Because you can't break His bones, can I? What, I ask people this all the time, what if the Roman soldier made a little slight mistake, because God, you know, is just kind of winging it here, and He thrusts the spear into the rib and breaks the rib? Is that possible? No. What if He hit the rib? What would happen? Break the rib? No. Break the stick? Pierce even the skin. Obviously, God is in control of this. The Roman thinks he's doing something. Is he really doing something? You've got to decide that on your own while I continue. But God used the Roman. To do these things, he used the Roman to perform the, the piercing. The nation of Ish- Israel were the ones who looked upon him and rejected him as king. They're the first they. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. So I have two. And they, the first they, will get a great awakening. A great awakening is coming for Israel. God intends to pour out his grace on them. And they, the first they, will realize who Jesus Christ really is. And there will be a great mourning. They will just wail for what they have thought and what they did. Just like the mourning that was for who? Josiah. When Josiah was killed. There will be a great shame in Israel because they did not recognize who Jesus Christ truly is. They did not know that he is the me of Zechariah 12.10. And they never noticed that the me is God himself. And there will be great shame in the church as well, by the way, when everyone figures this out. Because He will, you, you will either come to it yourself or he will force you to come to it. You're coming to it. See Revelation 3.16, especially great shame for those who write stupid books, who shall remain nameless, Bill O'Reilly. Okay, run that joke into the ground. Josiah now obviously must be investigated in order to solve our pierced question, so we should start that process while we've got a little time here. King Josiah is usually paired together with the prophet Jeremiah. That's uh, they uh, knew each other and they had very close contact. And uh, when you start studying uh, Jeremiah, you end up. And I started my teaching career pretty much in um, in Bible teaching, if you will, with the book of Jeremiah. It took me a year to get through the first four verses of Jeremiah because the first four verses takes you into King Josiah. Again, both Jeremiah and Josiah represent mostly the first coming of Christ. Uh, They're fantastic prophecies. So we're going to begin with the most amazing thing that the scripture says about any king of of Israel. It is what the Bible says about Josiah. And this thing that the Bible says about Josiah makes him so important to study. That's why I start with it usually. If I'm going to start a Bible class, if somebody hired me tomorrow to teach a Bible class, and trust me, nobody will. But if somebody were, again, nobody will. But, conceding the hypothetical, I would start with Second Kings 23, 21 through 25. So, let's do that. And I would call it my, your Bible study on Jeremiah. Is there anybody here who 20 years ago, no, there's not. <coughs> so, here we are. Second Kings 23, 21 through 25. Then the king, this is Josiah, commanded all the people saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. The king issues a commandment to keep the Passover. So what's the obvious uh, consideration there? Clearly they weren't keeping the Passover. So the king commands them. As it is written, you're going to keep the Passover and you're going to keep it exactly as it is written in the book of the covenant. That's inside the Ark of the Covenant, by the way. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, The house of, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the word of the law, which was written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him, this is verse 25. Now before Josiah, there was no king like Josiah. I'll read it exactly as it's written. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So think of all the kings of Israel. Any favorites? David? No king. Who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. Like Josiah. Not before, not after. That's why we study Josiah. He is an amazing man of God. What he does is amazing. King Josiah stands alone. I get asked all the time. What should I name my son? I never tell him Josiah because of what is said about him. This is a this is a person that figured it out, and when he did, he became incredible. In the eighteenth year, we're going to make a list. The eighteenth year. So how long did he go? Eighteen years. This Passover, finally, he says, what well, we're going to do this Passover is we're going to do it right. I'm going to get rid of all the perversions and the abominations, and we're going to do this one right by the book that we found. We found the book. Hilkiah found the book. I'm going to make the case in the weeks that come that Hilkiah is the father of who? Jeremiah. That begins the bond between Josiah and Jeremiah. This Passover was held before the Lord. So we're going to do this one right. And he he put away all the perversions and the abominations that were in the house of God. By the way, there's only one building that is allowed to be called the house of God. Or the house of the Lord. It is not a church. Only one building that God calls his house. That's the temple. In Jerusalem. That's the house of God. But Josiah cleaned out the temple. Let me say that again. Josiah (laughs) Josiah cleared the temple. Okay? He cleaned out. The temple of the perversions, you begin to see the typology come up. We're going to perform the words of the law. We have this exactness now. We're going to perform the Passover exactly. Hilkiah found the book. Okay, what is the book? Let me read it to you again. The law which was written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. The book of the covenant. So the book was inside the Ark of the Covenant or close by, or should have been inside the Ark of the Covenant. We'll get into that next week. This is the book. Who wrote it? It is the handwritten manuscript of who? Moses. And Hilkiah found it in the temple. By the way, he couldn't read it. So, the book, he found the word... Of God in the temple. Let me write: Found in the temple, somewhere. And by the way, one of the one of the great uh, positions on the Ark of the Covenant, where it was hidden and who hid it, is we have not found it since who? Since Jeremiah. You have have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all in the Babylonian captivity, essentially. And Jeremiah was the last one we know of, we believe, that had access to the Ark of the Covenant. And the handwritten manuscript of Moses. And the evidence is, is that he went towards Egypt and maybe even as deep as Ethiopia. That's why you see all the Ethiopians say that they have the Ark of the Covenant. But there's lots of speculation that he hid it right back where his father found it. Because that would be a very good hiding place. And it is still in the temple. And inside of it would be the book, the handwritten manuscript of Moses. If that's found, how will that affect the political atmosphere of the Middle East? That will be an incredible day. What's the first thing the Jews are going to do if they find this? They're going to build another temple. And now 8, it ends with no king like Josiah. So on the 18th year, Passover is going to be done correctly. He cleans out the temple. He performs the Passover exactly as the book says. Hilkiah is his priest that found the book. The book is the word of God. It was found in the temple. And there is no king ever, ever, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, without his might, with all his might, like Josiah before or after. Okay? Got that? So, now I erase all of that. we going to make another list. That's how we begin. Woo, is that all I got left, huh? Okay, gotta hurry. Now, 2 Chronicles 35. We gotta go quick. She's holding up fingers back there already. At least I want you to look at the, uh, I, I want you to notice how he cleaned out the temple, how he found the Word of God. Who is the Word of God? 2 Chronicles 35, 20 through 26. After all this, this is the death of Josiah. Why am I bringing up the death of Josiah? Because Josiah is brought up in the context of the crucifixion in Zechariah 12.10. Because you did not know it was me on the cross, you're going to go into mourning just like you mourned the death of Josiah. It's a crucifixion context. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to now, this is the pharaoh of Egypt, by the way. That should trigger you right off the bat. Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But Necho sent messengers to him saying, What have I done with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day. He was going to help the Assyrians, by the way. Evidence is, is once he helped the Assyrians, they would both combine, come back and slaughter Israel. But what have I done? So he's probably lying here. Is that a surprise? He's the Pharaoh. What have I done with you, King of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house which, with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with you, who is with me, lest he destroy you. In other words, God has told, no man has turned to God like Josiah. And the Pharaoh says, don't fight with me, Josiah, because God's on my side. Hopefully, you're suspicious. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him. Which means that Josiah did not believe him, knew for sure this was an enemy. But disguised himself. I've got to put that on the board because I'm running out of time. Josiah disguised himself. Okay. Cleared the temple. And now he's disguising himself. This is the king of the Jews. And he's disguised himself. So that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo. And the archers shot king Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot. That chariot, very important. Took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot. What's going on there? So uh, that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and all the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. This, by the way, is written approximately 90 years before Zechariah 12.10. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness. The Bible says nobody ever turned their heart like God, and, they talk, and it talks about his goodness. This was the definitive, definitive good man, if you will. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last. First, what would you call first, by the way, just for fun? First and last. You might call the first the, and you might call the last the. And that would be Greek, by the way. The Hebrew would be Aleph. Okay, so, really fast. Josiah the king disguised himself. You now know that one of the types of the crucifixion, the king of Israel, disguises himself so you don't know for sure who he is. Okay? You know that Josiah was shot by an arrow. He was therefore what? Pierced. You know that he was severely wounded. By the archers of the Pharaoh. So he's wounded. The Pharaoh wounds him. Back you go, Genesis 3.15. He says, take me away. And they take him out of the first chariot and they put him into a second chariot. And he dies and he's buried in a tomb. And all of Judah and Jerusalem mourn for him. Jeremiah is singled out as mourning for him. And singing men and singing women, they still sing. And the acts of Josiah and his goodness are recorded, the first and the last, which means all of them. If I had to select out the most important prophecy, it's this one right here, the disguised himself. Now you know, thank you. Now you know that the good king of Israel is going to disguise himself before his death. You're not going to know. He hid himself, by the way, into a, in, in soldier's clothing. He looked just like all the other soldiers. He got into a chariot that was a soldier's chariot. So everybody that saw Josiah did not know that he was the king of Jerusalem. Not only that, how do you get killed in one of these battles? By the archers. What are the, who gets killed by the archers? you Uriah the Hittite. How do you get killed? you got to go in the front. He is the first one. He's not only disguised. He's in a dumpy chariot, if you will. He's not wearing his king's robe. doesn't have his king's ring. He doesn't have his king's armor. He's got normal, ordinary armor, if you will, common armor. He's in a common chariot, and he's at the front. That's what he did. What made him do that? No one turned their heart to God like this man. Why did he do it? He knowingly sacrificed himself. He knew that the archers would hit him. He's in the front. No other king, you'll, you'll be, you'll never find another leader of any military force in my, and I searched trying to find did anybody else ever do this. You make the case that one other man disguised himself. Uh, Santa Anna put on a soldier's uniform and tried to hide from Sam Houston. I got interested in Santa Anna because he made chiclets. Never mind. He really did, essentially. Next time you have chiclets, think Santa Anna. I don't know why I said that, getting tired. Josiah sacrificed himself, he knew he would die, he knew the archers would get him, he knew that he would be killed. There was no other king like Josiah before him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise. Without dispute, the greatest tribute. For any king of Israel, Josiah is alone. And for today, I just want you to note that the great good king, of whom none other is compared, disguised himself. He is a type of Christ. And he makes sure that you know that he was disguised. Christ rode into Jerusalem in a chariot, didn't he? With his robe on, didn't he? No, he came in on a what? Came in on a donkey. No one thought, they still called him king. No one knew that it was the me. No one knew that that was God. No one knew Josiah was the king. Only a few knew it was Josiah. And nobody, hardly anyone, knew that that was Christ God in the flesh on the cross. What do I want you to be? I want you to know. That it's God there. Disguised. Why did he disguise himself? By the way, you find that typology in the Ark of the Covenant. Go ahead, musicians, start coming forward. The Ark of the Covenant is covered with skin, so you can't tell it's the Ark. It's disguised. What is this disguising? Why does God hide himself? What's he doing? If you have a position that that's not God, and you say, it's not God because... If it was, God would be disguised. Yeah, that's how he does it. Be one that knows who it is. Be one who's about to go to battle and you look over and you know you're going to be one of the first ones killed. And you're a foot soldier. And you look over there and the guy next to you is who? The king. And he's in a chariot, which means what? You're not going to keep up with him. He made sure. Why is he doing that? That, by the way, is exactly what Christ did. Why does God think this way? You get that figured out. You never buy a stupid book the rest of your lives. You're not one of the five million. Let's rise and be dismissed.